Uh, he would be approximately six foot, uh, slim build, fair complexion, slightly suntanned. Have you any doubt whatsoever now that these were the Beaumont children? None whatever. Uh, does the description that you were given this morning by the elderly couple of the man tally with previous description? Yes, in almost every detail. To see if there is any trace, any clue to the missing Beaumont children here in the Patawalanga Boat Haven. Public interest in this case, rather than lessening as the days have gone by to today, eighth, ninth days since the children disappeared, has increased to the extent where we see an amazing sight, a sight which I'm sure has not been duplicated in South Australia before. Thousands of people and hundreds of cars lining every inch of the surrounds of the Patawalunga Boat Haven. Mr. Croyster believes that they played in a hole or in a, in a, in a dig, dig out. Um, that is, uh, my main meaning in Slotting Blood. His, my main meaning in Slotting Blood. Yes, and that, that particular hole or cave must have uh, collapsed. Jim, what sort of question does one ask on a time like this? Well, what can you say, actually? I mean, I know many people all over Australia uh, really feel feel for us and um, um, it, well what can you say at this moment I mean we've been hanging on for nine months and 14 days now yeah. and uh, well we just gotta just wait and hope and pray do you hope that uh, dr. Crozet succeeds Jim oh well I mean that's his that's his uh, belief and uh, I, I really appreciate uh, him coming over I mean uh, to uh, to find the children but uh, uh, not the way that he says, because I don't believe that the children are uh, dead, and I'll cling on to the hope until there's evidence and the evidence found otherwise. Yes. Do you expect to meet Dr. Crozet, Nancy? No, I don't, sir. Why? Why is that? Because of the published remarks about uh, him more concerned with the children than the parents. That's right. I, I don't think that uh, Mr. Gray. I think it'd be very difficult for him too to meet us. I mm. think he's a very feeling man. Mm. And I think that his main objective is finding the children more so than talking to us, perhaps. Did you see him pass this morning? Well, I've seen all the cars go past. Yes. Yeah, but I didn't actually see him. I suppose there's been several false alarms over these past harrowing nine months for you. Oh, yes, it raises our hopes and we're let down again. And, and uh, now with Mr. Croisette's visit and, and um, all the press. And, uh, and, and by the way, uh, I would like to say at this stage that the, I will thank uh, um, the, all the radio, television stations and the press for, uh, for what they have been doing. Uh, I mean, uh, they are... Uh, uh, I mean, I know everybody feels for us, but uh, uh, all over Australia. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. I'm Harry and I'm here as always with my sister Bill. How are you going, Bill? Good, thanks, Harry. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. That's good. Um, I just wanted to let you guys know we are recording at a different time of day where the neighbourhood's a little bit more active, so apologies for any background noises that you may hear. Um, and I just wanted to say before we start, a big thank you to our newest Patreons. We do have a few new ones this week. So big thank you to Susie, Lisa, Maul Podcast, which is spelled M-A-U-L Podcast, Samuel, Simon, Hannah and Danielle. We hope you guys have been enjoying our latest Patreon episode and the other ones that we've got out. And thank you again for your support of the show. 
This week's case is one that you've probably most likely heard of before. It is also one of our most highly requested cases. It's been covered on quite a few other podcasts and most of them have actually covered it pretty well, but we have decided to cover it anyway since that's what you guys have been asking for. So this week we are covering the disappearance of the Beaumont children. The disappearance of the Beaumont children is a case that completely changed the way we parent in Australia. By many reports, the 26th of January 1966 is the day that Australia lost its innocence. Prior to this now infamous date, childhood in Australia was wholesome and carefree. Parents had no hesitation in allowing their children to foster their sense of independence from a young age. It was actually a rite of passage for children to head out on their own to explore their neighbourhoods. The disappearance of the Beaumont children was one of the first cases that sparked fear into parents' hearts nationwide, and it highlighted the realities of stranger danger. Grant and Nancy Beaumont met at the Victoria Hotel on Hindley Street in Adelaide. Grant was immediately taken aback by the beautiful young woman as she sat having dinner with her aunt and uncle. He was able to work up the courage to approach Nancy and introduce himself to her. It was what he would later describe as love at first sight. Only six weeks later, he asked her to spend the rest of her life with him, to which she replied, I'll let you know tomorrow. The next morning, on the 3rd of December, 1955, Grant went to the registrar's office to book an appointment to marry Nancy, and he was ecstatic when she agreed. On the 10th of September, 1956, Nancy gave birth to a beautiful little girl, Jane, at the McBride Hospital in Medindi. She and Grant were blessed again with another daughter, Anna, on the 1st of November, 1958. A little boy, Grant Jr., would complete the family on the 12th of July, 1961. The family lived a simple, happy life in Somerton Park, Adelaide. Somerton Park is a residential seaside suburb not far from popular Glenelg. Grant Beaumont Sr., or Jimmy to his friends and family, worked as a travelling linen salesman and would travel around Australia to make money to support his family. He really felt his life was coming together prior to the 26th of January, 1966. And just so we don't confuse Grant Senior and Grant Junior, we will refer to Grant Senior as Jimmy throughout the rest of this episode, as that was his preferred name. The day before that now infamous day was the 25th of January, 1966. Jimmy was due to go back to work after having had some time off to spend the holidays with his wife and children. He decided to take the three kids to the beach where they had spent much of their summer before heading off to work. After taking the kids to Glenelg Beach, Jimmy hung around for approximately half an hour to make sure the kids had settled in and were safe. Before he left, he warned them not to go too deep into the water and not to talk to strangers. He had to drive all the way to Snowtown to make some sales. After having some fun at the beach, the three Beaumont children made their way back to their Somerton Park home perfectly safe. The three Beaumont children were all very different. Jane Beaumont was nine years old at the time she went missing. She was known to be a little mother, helping to take care of her younger siblings and happily taking the role of the responsible child. She was tall for her age and slim. She was also very intelligent and had been at the top of her class academically the prior two years. She was known to be shy and reserved and not comfortable with people that she didn't know. She was basically the opposite of her little sister Anna, who was seven. She was outgoing and affectionate and known to entertain her family with little concerts she would put on. 
She loved to sing and dance, and by her parents' account, lived in her own little fantasy land. Grant Jr. was four at the time that the children went missing. He was known to be a daddy's boy and loved nothing more than being his dad's little shadow and helping him work on the car. By all accounts, these were great kids and a real testament to their parents. On the 26th of January, 1966, Nancy Beaumont was woken up by the sound of Anna and Grant playing in the lounge room at 7am. It had been a warm night with temperatures predicted to reach approximately 38 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The children had their hearts set on having another beach day and were begging their mother to take them. Nancy wasn't a big fan of going to the beach and it was usually Jimmy that took them. She did end up agreeing to take them on the condition that they waited for her to finish up with her house chores first. Excited, the kids got changed from their PJs to their bathers and it wasn't long before they were impatiently bugging Nancy to take them to the beach. Nancy still had things she needed to get done before they left and eventually decided it would just be easier to let them go to the beach without her. She told the kids she wanted them home by 12pm and gave them 75 cents to buy some lunch while they were at the beach. This 75 cents was made up of coins, um, so no notes were involved and that becomes relevant a little bit later. Jane put the money in a little white purse. Nancy thought that the safest way for the children to get to the beach and back was to take the bus from the corner of Diagonal Road. Letting children do things in small groups was very common back in the 60s and Nancy and Jimmy were proud to allow their children to have their independence. Especially with Jane in charge, they trusted her to make responsible decisions. This wasn't the first time they had ventured out alone. It wasn't uncommon for Anna and Jane to go to the cinemas on the weekends without their parents. So at approximately 8.45am, Nancy walked her three children to the front gate, kissed them goodbye and gave them the safety talk. Off the kids went and Nancy went back inside to finish off her chores. She was done by approximately 10am, at which point she went to a friend's house for a visit. On her way back home at approximately 5 to 12, she stopped at the bus stop thinking that maybe she would be able to meet the kids as they got off the bus. They didn't get off the bus, but she wasn't particularly concerned at that point, so she went home and made herself some lunch. Soon after, she had some visitors over, so that kept her distracted for a bit. When the 2pm bus came and went and the children didn't get off, she began to grow pretty worried. She tried not to let herself get carried away, but by 3pm, when Jimmy got home from work, she was well and truly beside herself. She let him know that the children hadn't returned from the beach and that she was very concerned. He jumped back in his car and headed straight down to Glenelg Beach. The beach was extremely busy. It was a very hot day and there were thousands of people cooling off. Another reason the beach may have been particularly crowded this day is that the 26th of January is Australia Day. So that would have brought more people to the beach. So Australia Day is a day that people celebrate Australia and it is a bit of a controversial date but um, that is what the day was. Also, the Glenelg Beach is just a stunning beach as well, so that would have brought lots of people to this spot. So all this made it all the more difficult to look for his children. He parked his car and walked to the spot where he had seen his children playing the day before. Every moment, his anxiety grew, as you can imagine. He eventually decided to drive home, hoping that when he got there, the kids would be home and they would just laugh off the whole thing, but they weren't there when he got home. He set off for a second search of the beach, which again turned up nothing. After approximately two hours of searching, Jimmy and Nancy decided that it was time to go to the Glenelg police station and report the children missing. 
By all reports, they were trying to remain positive and didn't want to believe the worst about what could have happened to the kids. At approximately 5pm, police took a full description of the children. This included their ages, the clothing they were wearing and a note of the airline-style bag that they were carrying. At this point, Nancy and Jimmy were absolutely beside themselves with fear. Officers arrived at the Beaumont home and began searching it, as well as questioning the couple intensely. Nancy grew more and more hysterical and she was blaming herself. Eventually, the attending doctors decided to give her some sedatives to help her calm down. Jimmy left with the officers to search again, while Nancy stayed home being comforted by a neighbour. Jimmy vowed that he wouldn't sleep or go to bed until he found his children. At around 5am, the Sea Rescue Squadron sent out five rescue boats into the ocean to search for the children. They looked in all the hollows and caves they came across on the small chance the children had drowned. However, this was quite an unlikely scenario because none of their personal belongings had been found on the beach. If they had drowned, they would have had to have taken all their belongings into the water with them, or alternatively, they could have been left on the beach and then stolen. It was also unlikely that on such a busy day at the beach that they would have drowned unnoticed. Mid-morning on the 27th of January 1966, Jimmy met with the media who were waiting for him on the back porch of his house. He said, somebody must be holding them against their will. They would otherwise have come home by now. At this stage, police had ruled out the drowning theory, as well as the theory that they had run away. The children had absolutely no reason to run away. They had a happy life with their parents. This left only one theory, and it was grim. The children had been abducted. People joined in the search for the three small children by the hundreds. Police cars drove up and down the streets of Glenelg with loudspeakers blaring from the car. Has anyone seen three small children? Please contact police immediately. Within 24 hours of the disappearance, South Australian homicide detectives had joined the investigation. Police on the case began speaking to witnesses who had seen the children the day before. One woman, who had started her first day of work on the 26th, had been on the 8.45am bus with the children. She remembered Jane telling Grant off for sticking his arm out the window. She was sure that that was the bus they were on because she knew that she'd gotten off the bus for work at 8.55am. Mailman Tom Patterson came forward and stated that he had spotted the children walking along Jetty Road on the 26th at around 3pm. He said they were holding hands and laughing and he heard one of them say, hey, there's our postie. His sighting may not be 100% reliable because he changed the day and time he thought he saw them a couple of times, but he was definitely trying to be helpful at the time. On the 29th of January 1966, a 74-year-old woman came forward with information. She had been sitting on a wooden bench at the beach on the 26th of January, and she saw what she believed to be the Beaumont children. They were frolicking with a man on the lawn beside Holdfast Bay Sailing Club at approximately 11am. She described the man she saw with them as in his 30s, tall, thin, and a surfy-looking man with blonde, sun-bleached hair. The woman remembered that the oldest girl was wearing pink bathers, which was consistent with what Jane was wearing, and she also described their bag with close accuracy. She saw the three children come out of the water after taking a swim and laying out their towels in the shade. She saw them playing in the sprinklers when the man approached them and began talking to them. He was lying on a towel around 10 feet from where she sat, 
and was wearing navy blue brief style swimmers. The three kids then reportedly went over to the man and were playing with him, flicking him with their towels and jumping over him. According to the witness, he was encouraging this interaction and when she left 30 minutes later, they were still playing. After only a couple of days, the entire of Australia was on alert about the missing children and many witnesses came forward. So roadblocks were actually put up, but unfortunately that was a good six to eight hours after the disappearance, which is plenty of time for a potential offender to get far away from the area. One man who contacted police had taken a flight from Adelaide to Sydney when he saw a man travelling with three children. He reported that the man matched the description and was the surfy type and that he also appeared agitated. A woman who lived in Melbourne, which is approximately 11 kilometres from Glenelg, said on the night of the 26th she saw a man with three children enter a house opposite hers. This was a house that was supposed to be vacant. She said at some point she saw a little boy leave the house and walk down a side lane. Then the man came back out and grabbed him roughly. She said there was no sign of them the next day. Presumably these sightings were looked into and nothing came of them. I think one of the main um, issues with this case is that there's not a lack of information. There is just like an oversaturation of sightings, um, suspects and everything. I didn't actually realise how many um, sightings and suspects there were until I did this case. Like, obviously, we'll get into the suspects later, but even just how many sightings there were and how different they all are. And it also seems that a lot of the sightings were reported after the fact. I think if, like, for example, if this lady had been like, oh, that should be... like, I'm not saying she did anything wrong, but if she was like, that's a vacant house usually who's that man with his three children and then called the police that could I'm not saying that it was even them but that could have had a different result or there's a couple of other things that come up um, as well that if they were reported a little bit earlier which is hard to do because if you see something suspicious you're not just going to instantly call the police but but it's like by the time they were reported Mm. they would be very hard to verify you can't go track that down so it's it is actually a lot of information but how much of it's really useful or helpful to the police was unfortunately not a whole lot of it. A number of witnesses came forwards with similar stories as the 74-year-old woman who had seen the three children with a tall blonde man on the beach. One was known as the attractive 19-year-old girl, which is an interesting way to describe somebody. Um, She noticed a man fitting the description, playing with two girls and a boy. She said the man was lying facing her and kept on staring at her and then glancing at the children who were running around him. She stated that this was between approximately noon and 12.20pm. She states that the children walked off in a southerly direction, followed by the man, but then also states that the man returned shortly after with a woman. On the 2nd of February, an elderly couple came forward with another sighting. They saw a man with three children on the lawns of the foreshore in the same area as the previous sightings. Again, the man was wearing navy blue briefs. They were a bit disturbed when they noticed that the man was dressing the children. They thought it was strange because he was even helping the eldest child, who looked more than capable of doing it herself. At around midday, the man approached the couple and said, did you see anyone with our clothes? We've had some money taken from our clothes. And I think they found it weird that he was saying our as well, because it really did imply that he was with the children. The man then took his clothes and went to the change rooms and we can just presume that he went to get dressed. And the last thing that the couple saw was the three children who looked like they were sitting on a park bench waiting for the man while he got changed. 
And obviously we cannot confirm that these children are the Beaumont children, but the couple that saw them are fairly sure that they that's who they were. And I think the police are actually fairly sure at this point as well. Police released a sketch of the man they were interested in speaking to. It wasn't a particularly detailed sketch. Police were looking into all the sexual offenders that lived within the area, and it seemed as though all of them had alibis for the time of the disappearance. At the same time, all the usual clairvoyants and diviners were coming out of the woodworks to share their two cents on the case. It was a similar situation to the Claremont murders that we covered, where the clairvoyants were not only bothering the police and media, but also getting directly in contact with Nancy and Jimmy Beaumont. The Beaumonts were trying to be open-minded, but at a point it got too upsetting to be in contact with these people, and nothing was coming from any of the leads they were presenting. After about six days of sedation, Nancy received clearance from her doctor to be interviewed by the media. She stated that she was confused by the sightings. She didn't believe that Jane would allow a man to dress her, especially because she was at the age where she was particular about her body. And as the mother of a nine-year-old girl myself, I can vouch for the fact that most nine-year-old girls have started to become a bit more body conscious. And I I agree with Nancy. I would find that strange if I heard that about my nine-year-old as well. Um, She also thought that Jane was far too shy to allow a strange man to spend time with herself and her siblings. After some time with no new leads, police extended an invitation for Australian academics to try and shed some light on the abduction. Australia's leading criminal psychiatrist at the time, Dr John McGeorge, stated that he was sure the Beaumont children were dead. He thought the killer had probably been inspired by the Moores murders in 1963. Dr McGeorge was known for accuracy in predicting the outcome of Australian crime cases. He predicted that the abductor would be reserved, unlikely to be married, have few friends, not be a very intelligent man and impulsive. This wasn't very helpful because even if it was correct, at that time the police didn't even have one suspect. The Beaumonts didn't believe that their children were dead. They believed it was more likely that they were stolen so that somebody could create their own ready-made family, maybe a woman who was desperate for children. Nine months after the disappearance, famous Dutch clairvoyant Gerald Croisset caught wind of the well-known case. He had a vision about the case that the children were dead as the result of a tragic accident. He didn't envision foul play being involved. He thought it was more likely the children were playing around the sand or water when there was a collapse and the children couldn't get out. He boasted that he had helped police find at least 350 children and although there was no proof of this, the Australian media ate it up. Two Adelaide businessmen put in the money to bring Croisset to Australia to help with the Beaumont case. Croisset said to the media, I have had a vision of where the children started from. I will walk there and a vision will come to me immediately. I am 90% sure I will pinpoint the place where the bodies will be found. The Beaumonts were upset that Croisette was publicly stating that the children were dead. When Croisette arrived, around 2,000 people, including the media, greeted him at the Adelaide airport. People gathered around wanting to get a look at the famous psychic as he walked through the terminal. The following morning, Croisette was taken at the area at Glenelg Beach where the children were last seen. He had a camera around his neck and held a tape recorder. He also had a notepad. He visited the wooden bench where the older woman had observed the children and walked along the esplanade before slumping against a brick wall. 
he sat on the steps of a shop and began taking notes furiously before going into a deep trance-like state. He created a sketch with an X marking the spot where he believed the children would be found. After he wandered around for a couple of days without success, he had a new vision. It was a vacant block of land. He claimed loudly to the media that the children were buried nine feet deep near the wall of a warehouse storeroom at Paringa Park, which was only 500 metres from the Beaumont's home. The police took Croisette to the warehouse he had envisioned. It had been run down and empty back in January, but had recently been rebuilt. Croisette wandered around the warehouse until he found a spot where he got the strongest feeling. He told the police that he believed the children had entered the warehouse that night seeking shelter. So to me, that's a bit bizarre because he totally changed his story from like the accident near the beach to they're now buried nine feet deep in a warehouse. So that's interesting. Croisette did end up meeting up with the Beaumonts for approximately 15 minutes before he headed back to the Netherlands. They told Croisette that they still believed their children were alive and Croisette told them, I hope you're right. So obviously he headed back to the Netherlands and nothing much really came of that trip. The investigators at that point were unsure whether they should really dig up the warehouse based on his claims. Eventually the funds were raised to demolish the floor to search the area. When the floor was cut away, predictably there were no bodies there. One year after the children's disappearance, Sergeant Blight, who was the officer in charge of the investigation, decided to release some new information. He revealed to the public that the children had left home with 75 cents in a little white purse, and as Bill said before, those were only coins, there were no notes. That fateful day, three children, thought to be the Beaumonts, entered a little cake shop named Wenzel's and asked for five pastries, one pie, six buns and two bottles of soft drink. When they went to pay, they handed over a one pound note. And obviously the question is, where had they gotten that note from? Because Nancy was sure that she had not given them a note. An employee from Wenzel's said they had been at the shop between 11.30 and 11.45am and had reported the sighting the day after the disappearance. Many people were critical of the police for withholding that information for so long because anything that had happened that day would no longer be fresh in the public's mind at that point. Approximately two years after the disappearance of their children, Jimmy and Nancy received a letter that was postmarked from Dandenong in Victoria. The letter had been addressed as though it had been written by Jane. It said, Dear Mum and Dad, we are safe, so there is no need to worry about us. Oh, we really miss you in the past two years. At the beach on that day, we were walking to the bus stop when a man in a car stopped us and asked us if we wanted a ride. I said we did. And that is how it all started. The man would not let us write before. He is letting us write tonight because he saw an article in the Herald tonight and felt sorry for you both. He watched us a lot for about six weeks and then he did not watch us so much. Anna and I often talk about you, but Grant does not remember you at all after more than two years. We have been well fed all the time. I as well as Anna and Grant hope that you are both well. The man said to me just now that he will willingly let us go if you will come over to Victoria to get us as long as you do not call the police. He said that if you do, the deal is off. You have to pick us up in front of the Dandenong Post Office at 10 minutes to 9 o'clock next Monday, 26th of February. You, 
dad, have to wear a dark coat and white pants so that the man will know you. The man told me to tell you that the police must not know as well. He said that if you do tell them, you may as well not come, so please don't tell them. The Dandenong Post Office is in Victoria, in case you did not know that. We are all looking forward to seeing you next Monday. Please do not tell the police. The man did not mean to harm us. We still love you both. Love Jane, Anna and Grant. Jimmy immediately called Detective Stan Swain, who was the head of the homicide squad at the time. When Swain asked Jimmy what he thought, he said he thought the writing looked like Jane's handwriting, but that the writer had misspelled Anna's name, which obviously Jane was nine, so that that was quite odd. The letter was shown to a handwriting expert who concluded that there were definitely similarities between Jane's handwriting and the letter. On the 25th of February, 1968, the Beaumont set out with detectives for Dandenong, Victoria. Jimmy did exactly what the letter asked and wore his white slacks and a dark jacket and stood outside the Dandenong post office. Just after 9am, a phone call was made to the post office. Reportedly, the caller sounded like a masculine Australian male. The caller said, "'Hello, is that Dandenong post office? "'Look, I wonder if you could do me a favour. Can you see a man standing outside your office wearing white cricket slacks and a blue blazer? Could you tell him that I won't be long? More phone calls came in to the post office and surrounding stores, delaying the arrival time and taunting the Beaumonts. Jimmy waited out the front of the post office until after 3pm. By that time, the media had caught wind of what was happening and there was no secrecy left to the operation. The Beaumonts remained in Dandenong for another two days before returning home, where they received another letter that had been posted on the 29th. It read, Dear Mum and Dad, we had a really beautiful lunch today. We had some turkey and lots of vegetables. They tasted really nice. The man is feeding us really well. The man took us to see the sound of music yesterday. Little Grant fell asleep in it though. He could not understand it. The man was very disappointed you brought all those policemen with you. He knew all the time that they were there. He says that is why he sent the message to go across the street so it would disturb the positions of the policemen. The man said that I had better stop now, so I will. Grant and Anna send their love. Love, Jane, Anna and Grant. Another letter arrived at the same time, but this one was addressed from the abductor, who called himself the man. It said, Dear Mr and Mrs Beaumont, I am terribly sorry that I could not hand you your children that I could not hand your children back to you when you were in Dandenong, but I knew that you had detectives with you, and the main street was so busy. I am taking extra good care of the kiddies for you. I took Grant to the doctor because of his gashed knee. He is feeling a lot better now. Actually, in a way, it is your own fault that I did not return them. I saw the letter that Jane wrote before she sent it, and it definitely said there were to be no police, and you know that that includes detectives as well. I apologise also for all the phone calls at the post office, Williams and Roger Davids, but I had to contact you somehow. Like Williams, the post office soon became quite bitchy. I got frantic when they would not give you any more messages. Then I got into contact with whom I believe was the Dandenong Post Office Master. I guess it is too late now, isn't it? 
I will put them on the train to Adelaide one of these days in the near future, so you had better have their rooms cleaned up. The assumed postmaster gave me a phone number to ring, so I did in a hurry. But the girls there lied miserably by saying that a Mr G A Beaumont had not been registered there. If only I could have talked to you then, you might have had your children safely by now. Isn't it a pity that you bought those detectives? I will write to you as often as, pos- as possible. I will let Jane and perhaps Anna write to you. I'm sorry for all the inconvenience I have caused you over the past two and a quarter years nearly. Yours faithfully, the man. A week later, the final letter in the series arrived, and I can only imagine how this would have felt for the poor Beaumont parents. It said, Dear Mum and Dad, I wish you could have got us when you were over here, but the man said you brought some policemen with you. I wish that you had not done that. If you had not, we might have been home by now with you. The man said that he will let us come home on the train one day. I want you to now and never forget, no matter what happens, that we still love you both very much. Love Jane, Anna and Grant. In 1992... With new technology, police were able to determine that the letter was a hoax. A 41-year-old man who had been a teenager at the time had written them. It's just so sad and I feel really sorry for the Beaumonts who were perhaps for those years thinking that if they had not brought the police with them, maybe they would have their children back. And I'm sure finding out it was a hoax brought no comfort. And, And that's just, I know he was a teenager, but that is heartbreaking that someone out there would do that. It really is sort of the lowest of the low act you can do. I'm sure he does regret it as an adult. Over the years, there have been a number of suspects in the case of the Beaumont children. We're going to briefly go through them now. One of the most well-known suspects is Bevan Spencer von Einem, who was a convicted child killer. In 1984, he was a 37-year-old accountant when he was arrested and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of 15-year-old Richard Calvin. So Richard Calvin was the son of a well-known Channel 9 newsreader called Rob Calvin. The police had an informant known as Mr B who reportedly had inside knowledge of Von Einem's crimes. He stated that Von Einem had admitted, had admitted to killing at least 10 people, including the Beaumont children and Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon, who we've actually covered in a mini-sode if you wanted to look back and listen to that case. According to Mr B, Von Einem told him that he had abducted the children to do experiments on them and during the procedure one child had died. He told Mr B that he had killed the other two children and thrown their bodies into the Maiponga Reservoir. Police divers searched the Maiponga Reservoir in February 1990 and found nothing of significance. Von Einem was known to frequent the Glenelg Beach to perv on the change rooms. He generally targeted older children, though. At the time of the Beaumont's disappearance, Von Einem would have been 20 to 21 years old, so obviously a bit younger than the suspect seen by the witnesses. Another suspect in the disappearance was Arthur Stanley Brown. Again, he was also a, again, he was also a suspect in the abduction of Kirsty and Joanne from the Adelaide Oval, which, as Harry said, she did cover in one of her minisodes. Brown's facial features are quite similar to the sketch that was released at the time of the Beaumont's disappearance. Brown was known to victimise children around the same age as the Beaumont children, so they were definitely within his target age range. There have never been any solid connections between Brown and the Beaumont children, 
and he would have been about 53 at the time of their abduction, so it's quite a bit older than the suspect that we were referring to earlier. Brown died in 2002. Another well-known suspect in the case was Derek Ernest Percy, who was a well-known child killer and molester. In April 2007, crime reporter John Sylvester suggested in the Age newspaper that Percy may be responsible for the abduction of the Beaumonts. Percy killed a young girl named Yvonne Tui on the 20th of July 1969, and police were sure this wasn't his first serious crime. Allegedly, there's evidence that Percy is a strong suspect in quite a few unsolved child abductions and murders, including the Beaumont children. At the time of their disappearance, Derek Percy would have been 17, which again is obviously a bit younger than the supposed suspect, but he did have that similar long, thin face and body. So if you look at the sketch, he again looks quite similar to that sketch, even though the sketch is very basic. Derek Percy did admit to being in the area that the Beaumont children went missing on the 26th of January 1966. He was reportedly staying with family nearby. To this day, he remains a person of interest in the case, although he died in prison in 2013. Another suspect was initially nicknamed Saturn Man. In June 2006, a woman from Queensland claimed that she had been married to a man who grew up in Glenelg and was a teenager when the Beaumonts went missing. Reportedly, her ex-husband told her that he believes his father was involved in the abduction of the Beaumont children. Her ex-husband's father lived walking distance from both the beach and the cake shop where the children were seen. He would have been 48 at the time of the disappearance. The woman described her ex-father-in-law as wealthy, deviant, and a man that indulged in his fetishes for satin material. And apparently the man actually couldn't control his sexual urges around satin. And just to confirm, we are talking about the material, satin material. Apparently he would give his son and friends each one pound notes when they went out to play, which is thought to be evidence that he may have given the Beaumonts that one pound note they reportedly were seen with. The woman's ex-husband, whose name was Warwick, was eventually interviewed about his father and told police more information. He said that the day the Beaumonts disappeared, he was just hanging out in the backyard after finishing work. He said that his father's car was in the driveway, but his mum was out at tennis. He saw three children come through the back gate of his house. He said that they looked lost, but that they did go inside the house. He then said that the children didn't come out, but about an hour later, he saw his dad loading the car boot with four large bags. Once this information was released, Channel 7 revealed that the identity of the father was wealthy former business owner of Castelloy, Harry Phipps, who died in 2003. After watching this on TV, two brothers had their memory triggered about being asked to dig a large hole for Harry Phipps back in 1966. And Harry was very well off and he paid them very well for their time. They were beside themselves and very concerned that they may have unknowingly participated in disposing of the Beaumont children. South Australia Major Crime Squad says they have thoroughly investigated Harry Phipps and that he is not a suspect in the disappearance of the Beaumont children. One of the most plausible theories in the Beaumont case was actually suggested by Jimmy Beaumont himself. He thought that the only way Jane would have willingly got into a car with a stranger was if the stranger knew the Beaumonts. 
He theorised that maybe the stranger knew Jimmy was getting home from the business trip that day and had told the kids he was home early and had sent the stranger to pick the kids up. There is also a possibility that the children weren't abducted at the beach, but while they were walking home, they'd walked home from the beach the previous day, so maybe they had been lured into someone's backyard while they were walking home. Maybe someone offered them a cool drink. Maybe it was someone from the neighbourhood they had met in passing in the past. Jimmy and Nancy's marriage sadly did not withstand the strain and grief of their loss. They divorced during, the ni- during 1980 and reportedly both live in their respective retirement homes. So I just wanted to say before we finish, like with this case, and I've noticed it while listening to other podcasts too, there's so much information, like it really did take a lot of time to research this case. But now we're at the end of the podcast and I mean, we've really come up with nothing. And even the potential leads that are out there, you can't even say for sure they were the Beaumont children and those sketches are actually the people who have, who have abducted the children. Like, so even the leads that we do have almost could be put down to nothing. So it's, it is really horrible. It's absolutely devastating. And to wake up one day with three children and go to bed that night not knowing where any of them are. I I just can't imagine the pain that the Beaumonts would have gone through. So with that, our deepest thoughts go out to the Beaumonts. We really hope that at some point there's some resolution to this case. Thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast as we've discussed this iconic and devastating case. At the very least, if we can keep talking about Jane, Anna and Grant, maybe someone will eventually come forward with new information that will bring some resolution and justice for Grant and Nancy. Please join us again next week for another episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. And until then, please stay safe.